Thank you, uh, children and Jesus University and handbells and our choir as usual for getting us off to a great start this morning. Good morning. It is Palm Sunday, and for those of you who are not familiar, I think you may have already picked up on the theme. And uh, the good news is, Penny read from you uh, to you from Matthew, and for the sermon this morning, we're actually going to be in John's Gospel, which is a heavily truncated version of the triumphal entry. Unfortunately, it's not going to be a heavily truncated sermon, but if you get one or the other... And so, this is, uh, this is the problem that I have sometimes when I'm sermon writing is, I think of a really great illustration, I think of something from a book that I've read, but when you read so many books and they start to get jumbled, so I actually spent, um, I'm not gonna tell you how long, it's way too much time yesterday trying to figure out where this illustration came from. So I'm just gonna tell you a story, if you happen to know, that I'm plagiarizing from a book, I would love it if you would come tell me after the service so that I can get it right for one of the services. But now I was thinking it was from uh, the Red Badge of Courage. And I did a skim read of that yesterday. It's not. But it's very similar, and it's uh, in that era. And there's this soldier who struggles to build up his courage to go to war again and again and again. And finally, he decides... Uh, you know, this is what I'm made out of. I'm going to go. He charges ahead and he has a one-on-one battle with this uh, other opposing soldier and he wins. And then he stands there feeling so proud of himself, so confident. And he takes a little victory lap and walks up this hill and realizes that on the other side of the hill are hundreds of soldiers fighting and that he wasn't fighting the real battle this whole time. So he had worked up all his, all his courage only to be fighting something that turned out to be very inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. And the reason this stuck out to me is because when we look at the triumphal entry, we look at Jesus coming in on Palm Sunday to Jerusalem, they're celebrating Jesus, but they might not be celebrating him for the wrong for the right reason. They're looking at Jesus and they're seeing maybe the wrong battle being fought and they don't have the perspective on what's going on here. And so, excuse me, when when the people of Jerusalem, they look at Jesus, they celebrate him for these wrong reasons, and here's the trick, if we're not careful, we actually do the same thing. When we look at Jesus' life and his ministry, we read the Gospels, we come to church, we hear preaching, and sometimes we celebrate him for the wrong reasons. And so, the good news is Jesus did indeed deserve this triumphal entry, but those who celebrated him were wrong about three things. Now, if you're a note-taker... Here are the three things that are going to come up later. They celebrate, they were one, they were wrong about their problem. So they celebrated him, but they were wrong about the problem that they thought they were facing. Two, they were wrong about the solution to the problem that they were facing. And three, they were wrong about their savior. And so at this time, with that in mind, we're going to turn to John's gospel. This is John chapter 12, verses uh, 12 to 19. And uh, read to you. It'll be on the screens and it is in your pew Bibles on page 899. Starting in verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. 
Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. And so what I love about John's gospel here, so uh, if I use the term spoiler, are you familiar with that? That's, uh, so I'm notoriously a spoiler. If I have seen a movie that you haven't seen and you don't like spoilers, stay away from me. I can't, if I could spoil the new Avengers movie for people, I would, but, uh, they've, even the actors don't know. So that's like the complete opposite of John's gospel. But John is a spoiler, right? He's, he's telling us about the triumphal entry and he's not two verses into it and starts to say, oh, but this, this didn't even make sense to us till afterwards. Wait till I tell you about the thing and then you'll understand this thing. And so he wants to say, uh, you know, in verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified and they remembered that these things had been written about him and done to him. So he's saying, uh, this is, this is all going to make sense, but not until Easter Sunday. It's not until next Sunday that Palm Sunday is really going to make sense uh, because there are these false expectations. And so as we go through, I'm going to invite you to keep your Bible open just for a few more minutes here. And we're just going to kind of go through these verses and, and see what's going on here. And we start in verse 13 or uh, verse 12. Um, and they heard Jesus coming to town. So they took these branches of palm leaves and palm leaves were actually a sign of homage, uh, to the victor. And you see that, um, Throughout scripture, you see it in uh, Maccabees. It's, it's, uh, in the, the non-canon of the, of our Bible, but, uh, it's in there, the history of God's people that, um, they would take palm leaves and they would celebrate a victor riding into town. And this phrase, Hosanna, means God save us. And it's a cry of praise from Psalm 118, specifically verse 25. And, the really interesting thing, when you get into this and you realize that they're reciting from Psalm 118 for Hosanna, crying out, God save us, just three verses earlier, it says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, which is what you will actually see unfold through what we call Holy Week this coming week. We see Jesus facing rejection uh, from the very people who are celebrating him at this time. So they're crying out, God save us. But then it moves on and and in verse 14, it says, And Jesus found a young donkey, uh, and he sat on it. And just as it is written, uh, fear not. And he's quoting here uh, from the Old Testament, from Zechariah 9, 9. And this actually reminds us of uh, earlier in John's gospel. This is just, if you're a note taker, just jot this down. Look it up later this week. John six fourteen to 15. Uh, Jesus had become so popular so early in his ministry that they wanted to overpower him and physically take him and bring him to Jerusalem to make him king, but Jesus withdrew. And now he comes in, entering on a donkey, which is a sign of peace, rather than a, than a horse, which would be a sign of war. And so this is like, if you're expecting to be liberated as a people, and you think, 
this great leader, this great military leader like David is going to come rolling into town. That would be like, we expect him to come in. The, like the, I don't know my models of tanks, but the largest tank you can find and instead he rolls up in a Prius. It's not quite what you're expecting. So they expect this great military might to come into town and instead he comes in as a man of peace riding uh, something that's uh, in their eyes at least beneath him. But this reinforces his mission from Zechariah 9.9, which is understood uh, only after Jesus' resurrection. And so this is where John goes into the spoiler mode then in verses 16 to 18, and he gives us the hindsight view of Palm Sunday. He says, the disciples did not understand this imagery. They didn't understand what was happening, why he was riding a donkey, why he's coming in this way, why he decided this time in his ministry to come in until... Um, Jesus' glorification, which is to say his resurrection. And now that's important to remember that Jesus' work, and a lot of times we like to think about how Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and that's correct, 100% true. You're going to hear me say it again today, and hopefully a few more times this week. But John knows that Jesus' work is not finished until the resurrection. So it's that glorification, and that is when all of the pieces start to fall into place. For his disciples. And then the really curious thing. It's just this one verse. At the end here. Verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another. You see that you are gaining nothing. Look the world has gone after him. And. What this tells you is. One. Jesus frustrates his enemies. If you've read the gospels before. Any one of the gospels. You won't be surprised by that. Um, But what, what we see is that. Something good happening to Jesus, Jesus being celebrated actually spurs his enemies on to greater works of evil. And it's, it reminds me of the quote, the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, the same sun that melts wax also hardens clay. The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. So if you take a lump of clay and you take a candle and put them out on the sidewalk on a hot day, one of them will melt and one of them will solidify And that's the effect that Jesus has on the human heart. He walks into Jerusalem and some people just melt and they're throwing palm branches at him and some people become hardened and they're spurred on in their pursuit of evil. But what we want to talk about today, now, I'm going to talk about this in two ways and I don't think it's going to throw you off. But the first thing I said I was going to talk about is that they're wrong about the problem. They're wrong about their problem, the people of Jerusalem. But what I'm actually going to say is that we are wrong about our problem. Now, see, we're going to miss Jesus in the same ways that the people of Israel do. And the first thing is being wrong about the problem. Now, the people of Jerusalem believed that their biggest problem, the most defining struggle of their day, of their people, was basically political in nature. Is this, they're occupied by the Romans. So they thought the biggest problem they had to deal with was a political problem. Now I know, how, aren't you glad Christians don't fall into that trap anymore? <laughs> I take it from your laughter that you agree with me that it's still a trap some Christians fall into. We believe that our biggest problem on any given day, on any given year, is a political one. But... There's a sense in which, and we don't want to belittle this, the people of Israel had been living in captivity. They'd been living underneath a foreign power who did not uh, respect their religious belief. They didn't respect their uh, 
form of government or them as a people group. And so this is a real problem, right? So just because I'm saying it's not the main problem doesn't mean it's not a real, it's a very real problem. And it causes distress and harm and it's a form of oppression. It's a very real problem. But in light of Jesus' ministry, it's what we might call uh, a problem with a lowercase p. Now, I was... I wrote this down a couple ways, so I might accidentally do it a couple times. But I wrote that down as a lowercase p problem. And when I was giving my wife the three-minute rundown of my sermon this morning, I kept saying lowercase p problem and uppercase p problem. And she said, it sounds like you have a stutter. So we're going to not do that. (laughs) You get it, the lowercase p problem? So if I call it a lowercase problem, that's what I mean. It's a the smaller kind of problem. And so it's what... It's really, it's a symptom of the ultimate problem. All of these lowercase problems are symptoms of the ultimate problem. And what Jesus sees is the uppercase problem. And that is, he sees sin entering into the world. And sin, human sin, human error, uh, is the source of death and oppression and violence. All of the lowercase problems, no matter how costly, no matter how significant, ultimately flow from that uppercase problem, which is sin and brokenness. And so they celebrated what they thought was the end of their lowercase p problem. See, I just did it. And and eventually, now this is the interesting thing, they were so obsessed about this lowercase problem that they turned against Jesus when he tries to solve the uppercase problem. He tries to deal with the problem behind the problem, and they turn on him because he's not giving them exactly what they think they need. Now, We're just saying a lot of they. Now we're going to switch to we. How many of us want to turn to God with problems at work, problems at school, problems in our relationships, but we don't want to trust him with our ultimate problem? Now, here's the diagnostic for that. The symptoms look like this. Every time you face distress, you find yourself praying, crying out to God, you know, help me, why has this happened to me? Help me, help me, help me. But that's the only time you ever pray. If that's the only time that you're ever praying, ever turning to scripture, ever trying to follow after Jesus is when you want some small problem fixed in your life. I mean, and it may be a very large problem in your life, but it's not your ultimate problem. It's not the problem of your own sin then that is a symptom of you wanting Jesus to take care of the little things, but not trusting him with your biggest problem, which is uh, your sinful heart and desires. And so when we read the Gospels, we're challenged with the reality of the condition of our hearts and how that impacts everything else in our life. And so as, as we enter into what we call Holy Week, which is Palm Sunday, and we celebrate Monday, Thursday, and you'll hear a little bit more about that later, and Good Friday and Easter Sunday, this is a great time to consider this. Consider where you are with God, and do you need to turn to God in prayer and confess that your problems are bigger than you can manage, and let alone big enough, bigger than uh, you can resolve on your own. And in fact, they all stem from one problem that only Jesus can solve. And then you ask Jesus to forgive you of that sin and take that to the cross with him this Good Friday. And so they're, they're wrong about the problem that they, that needs fixing. And frequently we are wrong about the problem that needs fixing. We're wrong in thinking that our problems only extend as far as our anxieties for the present day. 
But that's not the only thing we're wrong about. Isn't this a happy sermon? I just get to tell you all the things. Now, notice I'm not saying you, I'm saying we. This is an all-inclusive statement. These are things that I am also wrong about. And so, if, uh, and this probably isn't that surprising, but if you're wrong about the problem, you're also going to be wrong about the solution. So the people of Jerusalem believed that since they were conquered by the sword, then the solution would be more military might. You see the logic there? That makes sense, in a sense. They're conquered by the sword, and so they think, well, we just need a bigger, you know, we need a bigger stick. And so we need more military might than what it took to overcome us. Yet, Jesus comes in peace. He comes riding on this donkey, which is uh, somewhat of a disappointment for those who are expecting a, a, a military parade. And so he does not deliver his people in the way that they expect him to, but he does it in a way that's consistent with who he is. And here's the trouble, and this is why I say we're wrong about the solution to our problems. Often we are tempted to compromise the ways of Christ and use methods and solutions to our problems that are common to the world, yet are not fitting for someone who's living a life following after Jesus. So we're tempted to pick up and borrow things that we see around us, that we see from the world and say, well, that method looks like it works. It looks effective, so let's borrow that. And that's really what the people of Jerusalem were doing. They were saying, we're conquered by the sword, so it's going to take the sword to deliver us. But that's not what Jesus has in mind because that's not what Jesus sees as their biggest problem. Now, it was it was really... Uh, Really interesting, I was reading a Palm Sunday sermon yesterday from 1959, delivered by Martin Luther King Jr. And now, if Martin Luther King Jr. stands out for anything, which is a great many things, and a, you know, he's a great civil rights leader, great American pastor and theologian, and a uh, great, great mind, great thinker, and a uh, great heart. But when he, when I hear the word nonviolence, Martin Luther King Jr. comes to mind. And I'm going to read to you this passage from his 1959 Palm Sunday sermon where he's just marveling at Jesus' entrance in a form of peace. He says it like, now some of these references are a little older than I am, about a quarter cent, more than a quarter century. But I think it should be uh, familiar to at least a couple of you. For in a day when... <laughs> uh, for in a day when Sputniks and explorers are dashing through outer space, and guided ballistic missiles are carving highways of death through the stratosphere. No nation can win a war. Today, it is no longer a choice between violence and nonviolence. It is either a choice between nonviolence or non-existence. And that's the end of the quote. Do you hear a hint of despair in there? He looks around at the world in war, the world in turmoil, all of the threats, and he says... I don't understand how nonviolence is a plausible option. How is that a real option in the world that we live in? Yet, in the life of following after Jesus, we see him live out the next decade of his life in an unrem- unbelievable fashion of nonviolence and of peace-seeking and peacekeeping. And so we see a man so dedicated to following after Jesus, he can't make any sense out of Jesus' method, but he says, if that's what Jesus is doing, that's what I'm doing. And so, Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., would not borrow 
from the world's methods. And so perhaps sometimes, more often than not, we are tempted to borrow from the world's methods as well. And whether it's uh, a quick shortcut to get ahead at work or uh, an easy way to get through school or any way in life to take advantage of someone else, it is very easy to rationalize and think that we should use the same method as those who inflict harm on us. It's so easy to do. And I've, uh, one of my favorite quotes is from a seminary professor of mine named Dan Doriani. And he said it like this. He said, whatever is common seems normal. And whatever is normal seems right. So whatever's common seems normal and whatever's normal seems right. And that's how easy it is to slip into borrowing tactics and strategies and methods from the world rather than imitating Jesus and the way that he taught us to act. But as followers of Jesus, we follow him as he acts and as he commands us to act, as he instructs us. Uh, and so Jesus, it isn't surprising then if you can't see the problem clearly, which is the uppercase P problem of sin, then you're not going to see the solution. You're going to be tempted to take these shortcuts. But Jesus is the only solution to the only problem that ultimately plagues us. And so here's, and this is, the, this is the shorter one. So we're wrong about the problem, we're wrong about the solution, and we're wrong about the Savior. Now the people of Jerusalem wanted the Savior to come and liberate them so they could return to the lifestyle they were used to, the lifestyle they wanted to have. And the crowd came uh, in part wanting liberation, but another part of the crowd just came wanting to see signs and miracles. Maybe they wanted a miracle for themselves pretty reasonable. You hear about the things he's done. And it says here, he raised Lazarus from the tomb. And the people who witnessed that are still spreading word about it. And so these people have heard about it. And that's why they came out. They're not looking for forgiveness for their sins. They're not looking for ultimate salvation from God. They're looking for uh, a a performance or a trick uh, that they can see and be impressed by. But the salvation that Jesus offers is not one where we accept short-term help from him, uh, and and keep moving on with our lives. And it's not a slight course correction or just here's an adjustment that you need to make in your life, but it's full salvation. Jesus is not a booster shot to our problems. He is salvation in and of himself. And in Scripture, they frequently use the, the imagery of a race. And so if I'm you know, running a race or a marathon, and if I can just borrow that and use it for our purposes here, if you twist your ankle while you're running a race, Jesus is not the guy who comes and uh, helps you back up on your feet and says, go, go get him, champ. You know, he's not helping you a little bit along the way and letting you run your course. He's the one who picks you up on his shoulders and runs the race for you so that his victory is your victory. And when we get to Good Friday, it is his victory on the cross where he takes our sins upon his shoulders And his victory in the resurrection is our victory in him for those of us who are in Christ. And so we see uh, basically all the wrong ways to celebrate Palm Sunday. And so the question, I guess, as we end here is how do we rightly observe Palm Sunday? Well, Jesus, they cry out this word, Hosanna. The crowd does not understand the implication of their cry for salvation. They're saying, save us from the Romans, and Jesus is saying, no, I'm coming to save you from sin, which is much bigger than the Romans. And he does do that, and he comes riding a donkey to bring peace, not violence. However, the price of peace is violence. 
as we will see this week. He comes to bring peace, not violence, yet the price of that peace is violence. Instead of wielding a sword or threatening to wipe out corruption against humanity, which, by the way, would not leave any of us left if he decided to do that, but instead of wielding the sword, he takes he makes peace by taking the sword on himself and on behalf of those who are corrupt. That's Jesus' way to fight corruption, is not by picking up the sword, but by taking the sword. And not because he deserved it, but because we deserve it. And so meanwhile, our struggle with day-to-day problems that are very real problems, and some of them are very weighty and very heavy, very significant, but they are all symptoms of the ultimate problem, which is sin. And the only remedy to that is that Jesus struck down the source of all of our little problems by taking on the ultimate problem on the cross. And so how do we observe Palm Sunday rightly? We celebrate Jesus' revealed purpose, as John shows us here, as we look ahead to Easter Sunday. We recognize him as king, meaning he rules. He rules uh, not just uh, by what he does, but also by what he says. And uh, he delivers us from sin, not just in the past, but going forward and shows us how to rightly live. And so we recognize him as king. We follow him and his ways, and we turn to him for our salvation, for our joy, 